0: this is the ibj podcast for the week of november the 7th 2022 brought to you by taft i'm your host mason king welcome back to the podcast everybody hopefully you are aware that the u.s midterm elections are on tuesday november the 8th although the lead-up to this set of races has been nothing like what we experienced in 2020 You are forgiven if you still have something of a political hangover from that election and its aftermath. But there are many candidates for federal, state, and local positions on Tuesday's ballot that affect central Indiana residents in any number of ways. For this week's edition of the podcast, we'll bring you up to speed on four of the most interesting and consequential races. On the federal level, of course, U.S. Senator Todd Young, a Republican, is defending his seat from Tom McDermott, the Democratic mayor of Hammond, Indiana, and Libertarian candidate James Seniac, a behavioral therapist. The race between Young and McDermott has been surprisingly close, given Young's name recognition and massive advantage in fundraising. On the state level, we have the headline-grabbing contest between Republican Diego Morales and Democrat Destiny Wells for Secretary of State Ironically, the state position that has the most sway over elections. Morales has been hit by several troubling allegations in recent months, including sexual misconduct and embellishing his military record. There's a fascinating race shaping up in the Indiana Senate District 31, which includes the Geist area, Lawrence, and the city of Fishers. The incumbent, Republican Kyle Walker, reportedly has far outraised Democrat opponent, Jocelyn Vare, but at least one poll shows that this race is a toss-up. And in Indianapolis, Marion County Prosecutor Ryan Mears, a Democrat, faces a tough challenge from Republican Cindy Carrasco. She claims Mears has been soft on violent criminals, and she has raised an impressive amount of money to get her message out. For this week's edition of the podcast, I've invited two of my colleagues from the IBJ newsroom to get us up to speed. Peter Blanchard, covers politics and state government. And Greg Weaver is our government and politics editor. Here's our conversation. I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Peter Blanchard, who covers politics and state government for IBJ. Pete, thanks for making time. Thanks, Mason. And IBJ managing editor, Greg Weaver, who has been covering politics and Indiana state government for several decades between IBJ and the Indianapolis Star. Thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a race that will be on all of the Hoosier ballots on Tuesday, Secretary of State. It's one of my favorite races because it's very meta,
1: as they say. Greg, explain what the Secretary of State does. It's primarily the chief elections officer for the state, so enforces election law, but also does other things like um, register businesses uh, and corporations uh, and things of that nature. Our candidates are Republican
0: Diego Morales, Democrat Destiny Wells, and Libertarian Jeff Mauer. None of them is the incumbent. That would be the current Secretary of State, Holly
1: Sullivan. Explain why Sullivan isn't on the ballot. She's not on the ballot because she lost uh, in the Republican State Convention to Diego Morales, even though um, she was endorsed uh, and heavily supported by uh, Governor Eric Holcomb. I did not realize that could happen. You could be an incumbent
0: that you just wouldn't automatically appear on the on the ballot the next time.
1: Well, and she's she's technically not the incumbent. I mean, she was appointed to that position because it was vacated uh, by her predecessor, so that's one okay. thing that happened. Uh, but also, um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of the few statewide offices that are um, selected uh, by uh, delegates to the state convention rather than by voters in a primary. Now, this is an unusual race because Democrats haven't won a
0: statewide office since 2012 and the Secretary of State's office since 1990. But they think Destiny Wells has a shot at this one. And we should point out this is her first run for an elected office, which may or may not be
2: an advantage. It's hard to tell anymore. What do we know about her background? Uh, So Destiny Wells is is from Martinsville, a deeply conservative part of the state. Um, she has said she grew up Republican, um, decided to enlist in the military at 19, um, not long after 911. Uh and you know as she told me in an interview once, she traveled the world a few times and came back a Democrat. Um, so she's you know a pretty decorated military veteran, she's uh she was deployed to Afghanistan for a time. Uh she served uh she currently serves as an Army Lieutenant Colonel Reserve. Um, and she's held a, a number of positions. She has her law degree. She worked for a brief time for the city of Indianapolis as an attorney, um, but she's, this is her first time running for public office, so she's uh, very much a newcomer, but she's had a, a lot of success raising money in this campaign. She's pretty much been able to uh, stay neck and neck with Diego Morales in, in terms of fundraising um, and very few blemishes on her record. One of the main
0: reasons Democrats like her chances is that Morales has been mired in a series of controversies. Can we run through them quickly? And maybe let's start with uh, the one that uh, was just brought up today by the stars James Briggs.
2: Sure. So the this, this story by Briggs dates back to 2018 when Diego Morales was running for Congress in the 4th Congressional District. Morales ha- had his primary residence in Marion County, but then he also rented a condo uh, in Hendricks County um, in order to say that, you know, he was living in the district that he was running for. Um, but this, this latest story by Briggs basically tries to connect the dots and say that, you know, according to people close to Morales at the time, he wasn't actually uh, living at the house. In 2018, he claimed a homestead deduction on his Marion County residence, which, would indicate that's your primary residence, because that's how you're able to obtain that deduction. So the article basically raises more questions about whether Morales was actually uh, living in the district that he said he was uh, when he was running in that district. And he also voted in Hendricks County um, in that district. And it is a felony to to vote you know, in a district where you're not actually establishing residence.
0: OK, so we have that, and that's, that's today. But there have been
2: several others um, go ahead. Diego Morales, uh, among other things, he's been accused of exaggerating his military service. Uh, he, also, he often describes himself as a, a U.S. Army veteran. You know, in his Twitter avatar and in his campaign ads, you can see him wearing full military garb. Uh, a closer look at his records show that he was only uh, enlisted in the Army for um, about three months He had spent about five years in the National Guard training, but his his time um, on active duty was was very short, um, and it's unclear why it came to an early end before his commitment with the National Guard uh, was over. Uh, He's also been accused of sexual assault by two Republican women who now work for his opponent's campaign. He's also... um, Those are
1: allegations he's denied, by the way.
2: You know, the other thing is that um, he was, you know, Twice worked in the Secretary of State's office. Uh, One time he was fired for workplace performance issues. Um, He's also previously called the 2020 election a scam, and he's since walked back those comments. And he's also changed his stance on early voting. So, you know, a number of things working against Diego Morales in this campaign, but, you know, I think he's hoping he can still eke out a win um, because he's Republican in a Republican state.
0: He has spent, as, as we point out here, a good amount of time in Republican politics. How so?
2: Diego Morales has um, been involved in, in various campaigns over the years. Uh, he worked um, as an aide to, to uh, Mike Pence during Pence's time in office. He's also uh, been involved uh, in, in politics. He, he ran for, uh, as we mentioned, he ran for uh, the 4th Congressional District in uh, 2018, and he's had a long history of working with the Republican Party. And he's an, he's an avid campaigner. He's constantly um, touring the state, um, meeting with voters, attending GOP events at uh, in various counties across the state. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, usually, a close race will shake out a bit after the debates or a, a debate. But what has happened uh, with uh, the debate or debates that were scheduled? between Morales and Wells.
1: Morales just hasn't showed up. uh, So he's declined to participate in these debates. uh, So there's really been no sort of bounce out of them as you might expect in typical races. And I think that's largely because he doesn't want to have to address um, all the issues that have been raised about him over the last several months. Is there any indication that skipping a debate hurts the candidate? I
0: mean, there's obviously some, the calculus on their side was this (laughs) <laughs> will that be a problem for us, end. I,
1: I mean, I think it might if it were a higher profile race, like if it was a U.S. Senate race or perhaps a race for Congress. I'm just not sure in this election cycle how many people are paying attention uh, to the race for secretary of state. Uh, and uh, I think that also leaves open the question as to whether or not um, all the issues that are dogging Morales will actually have any impact uh, in the election Uh at least, uh, you know, will, they have, will it have an impact as much as the Democrats would like for, the, for them to have? And I think that's an open question, and I don't think we're going to know that until election night.
2: Did Wells and Maurer
1: end up debating?
2: Uh, they did. Um, there was a, a forum hosted by the Asian American Pacific Bar Association and there was also a more, um, more high-profile debate uh, hosted by WFYI um, in which there were three podiums, uh, one with Destiny Wells, one with Jeff Maurer, and then uh, Diego Morales' podium sat empty on the stage. What does the polling say about this race so far?
1: The polling shows it's very close. Uh, it um, does give Destiny Wells a slight advantage, but it's within the margin of error. And that's polling that was done uh, by a firm that was doing work for uh, Abdul Hakim Shabazz, uh, who publishes the cheat sheet and operates uh, So, But that was fairly early in the race, uh, and um, there was still a large number of undecideds uh, in that race. Um, And so the question is, will the Republicans who are undecided uh, stick with the Republican candidate uh, despite all these allegations uh, that are outstanding against him? What do we know about uh, Maurer just as a a candidate? And is it possible
0: that he could play a spoiler as a libertarian candidate uh, if you assume that he would be attractive to some conservatives?
2: I think that's definitely possible, and, and um, you know, libertarians in previous elections uh, have done fairly well, um, go- going as high as seven percentage points. Um, if he were to uh, get 10% of the vote, uh, then he would be able to uh, uh, list libertarian on the, the primary ballot. Uh, so there is um, there is some momentum for Jeff Maurer, I believe, uh, in this election. Yeah, he's also a military veteran, so you've got uh, three veterans running in this race. One of his main positions is that he thinks our elections need to be audited more closely. He wants to um, have audits of every election after it's done, and he wants uh, voters to um, be able to basically see a a kind of digital receipt of their vote after they vote. You know, it's unclear what the cost of that kind of program would be, but it's something he said he supports. What does uh, Morales say about how
0: he would do his job?
2: So Morales uh, wants to expand voter ID laws. In fact, in a recent tweet, uh, he said it's time that Hoosiers be required to show their ID even when they vote by mail. Unclear how that would work, but he's, he's also said that he wants to uh, reduce the early voting period from 28 days to 14 days. He has since um, walked back that position, but he has been firm uh, in the fact that he has said he wants to strengthen and expand uh, the state's voter ID law. Okay. And what about Wells? Wells is critical of the state's voter ID law. It's not something she supports. You know, she's kind of powerless to be able to change it because it would have to be, it uh, would have to go through the state legislature. But we do know that uh, she wants to uh, make it easier for Hoosiers to vote. Uh, she says um, she wants to. Um, remove uh, the requirement that you need to provide an excuse when you vote by mail. She wants to um, allow anyone to vote by mail uh, without having to provide a reason.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast.
1: Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com.
0: All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and my conversation with Peter Blanchard, who covers politics and state government for IBJ, and Greg Weaver, our government and politics editor. Okay, let's move to the Marion County prosecutors race, where, again, we have two fairly unknown candidates, although Democrat Ryan Mears is the incumbent, technically. How did he end up in office?
1: Ryan Mears was appointed by a Democratic caucus to uh, fill out the term of uh, Terry Curry, uh, the the former prosecutor who was becoming uh, ill with prostate cancer. And Mears had been in
0: the office uh, in various roles, I assume, for many years. Yes, for several years. So what is Republican Cindy Carrasco? And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Cindy Carrasco,
2: what is her background? Cindy Carrasco, her first job after graduating from IU Law School, she was a staff attorney for the Office of Inspector General. Uh, Pretty soon after, she was elevated to the executive director of the State Ethics Commission, which is the bipartisan commission in the fight against government fraud and corruption. She did that for over eight years. Um, And then in 2015, she became the first woman uh, to be appointed as the state's uh, inspector general, uh, a position she held for some time. Um, And then most recently, she served as deputy general counsel and ethics officer uh, to Governor Eric Holcomb.
0: I don't know much about being a prosecutor. I've always imagined that it would be pretty much the same for anybody. This is, this is my law and order <laughs> education and politics. Please catch the criminals. And then you, as a prosecutor, create as strong a case as you can against them. But Carrasco has pointed to many differences in how she would approach the office.
1: Well, I think the differences sometimes come down to perceptions. And so Cindy Carrasco would tell you that downtown is unsafe. Ryan Mears would tells you, will tell you that it is safe. Cindy Carrasco would tell you that more needs to be done to fight violent crime. Uh, Ryan Mears would tell you that he has um, stopped prosecuting uh, lower uh, offenses involving possession of marijuana and is also not pursuing cases um, that violate the state's uh, strong abortion restrictions so that he can spend more time... Uh, fighting violent crime and prosecuting violent crime. But, you know, on the other hand, Cindy Carrasco says, well, you really shouldn't just issue these blanket statements about not prosecuting these lower-level crimes. Each case should be considered uh, on a case-by-case basis and on its merits. Those are sort of the primary differences between the two candidates. And I think the other thing that you see in their um, campaign commercials and the way they're presenting themselves to the electorate is that Ryan Mears uh, makes a a lot of points about how he is trying to help people who find themselves uh, charged with lower-level crimes and have difficulty doing things that allow them to work their ways back into society and become productive members. So among the things that he's done is – Spent a lot of time uh, working on trying to help people get their driver's licenses back once they've been revoked so that they can start, you know, driving back to work again. You know, it's, it, it, I think it's really going to come down to how voters perceive whether or not they feel safe in Marion County. Do they think that, that Ryan Mears's approach is the right approach and that he's doing enough to keep them safe? Or do they think they need somebody who is more, it comes off as a little more stronger law and order Uh, as Cindy Carrasco does.
0: I think one of Carrasco's uh, strongest lines of attack is to bring up the mass shooting last year at the FedEx ground facility in Indianapolis where a gunman killed eight people. And Mears' office was criticized for not filing what they call a red flag case against the shooter who was known, this is prior to the shooting, this guy was known to have threatened to attack police as a kind of form of suicide. Now, red flagging the shooter might have prevented him from being able to purchase the two AR-15-style rifles that later that year he used in the FedEx attack. How does Mears counter this attack?
1: Ryan Mears has been very critical of Indiana's um, red flag law because he says it doesn't provide prosecutors with enough time to subpoena medical records and build a case that would be sufficient in persuading a judge that uh, a person's uh, rights to guns should be denied. He's also said that there's really virtually nothing you can do to keep uh, illegal guns out of the hands of criminals in Indiana, largely because the state has been reluctant, very reluctant, uh, to put any sort of restrictions on sales of guns at gun shows. So how-
0: Uh, Is the race shaping up? And and I'm sorry, I have not been keeping track of this, any polling on this particular race. What does it look like right now?
2: You know, I think it's really hard to say. There hasn't been any really public polling in this race. You know, I think Mears is, is considered to be favored because he's a Democrat in the city of Indianapolis. You know, I think Carrasco is sort of hoping that you know people are concerned enough about violent crime and whether downtown is safe or not that they will uh, consider voting someone new into office. You know, in the hopes that that could change things.
0: I know that the fundraising in this in this race has been strong. I think on both sides, uh, Carrasco raised almost uh, three hundred seventy-two thousand dollars in the third quarter. She raised, I think, five hundred seventy-seven thousand since launching her campaign. In January, Mears raised almost 300000 in the quarter, and that nearly tripled his contributions of 110000 in the previous quarter. It's it's evenish, basically. Uh, Mears had more cash, obviously, uh, in, in the chest uh, prior to Carrasco entering the race. And we recently ran a story uh, showing that Carrasco had spent probably $70,000 on local TV ads. To Mears's sixty thousand, uh, that isn't up to today, but I mean it gives you an indication of, of, uh, of you know, the kind of spending in this race. I'm going to assume that we're going to see a lot more ads <laughs> between now and Tuesday.
2: Yeah, I think that's a you know I think that's a fair assumption. Um, you know, this is typically you know a, a county prosecutor's race wouldn't be this competitive. Um, I think Carrasco, you know, is, is due credit for helping to raise the profile of this race. Uh, they both, as you said, they've run a lot of campaign ads, and there are, there are more to come. I'm sure our listeners have seen some of them. Uh, their approach in ads is very different. Uh, Ryan Mears, you know, in his campaign ads, which have all been positive, uh, he's focused on the fact that he's, you know, Uh, not prosecuting people for simple possession of marijuana, you know, as Greg mentioned, he's not going to go after doctors or patients if they're accused of violating Indiana's new abortion ban, you know, and he also likes to tout the fact that um, he's, um, you know, doing all he can to, uh, you know, take accused violent criminals to trial. Carrasco, meanwhile, in her ads, uh, you know, says crime is skyrocketing, and she blames Mears for Uh, failing to enforce the state's uh, red flag gun law, and uh, also blames Mears for allowing violent criminals to be released uh, onto the streets.
1: Yeah, and and amid all this, it should be noted that even though there are all these accusations that um, violent crime is up, um, homicides are actually down from a year ago. And so, you know, sometimes it's hard to make that argument really strongly that crime is up. Some crime may be up, but homicides are not. Our next race includes a bit
0: of Marion County. It's State Senate District 31, which includes, I believe, all the Fishers, Geist, parts of Lawrence. The incumbent Republican Kyle Walker reportedly has far outraised Democrat Jocelyn
2: Vare. But at least one poll shows that this race is pretty much a toss-up. Is that still the case? That seems to be the impression. Uh, The poll that you mentioned came out in August. Basically put the race in a dead heat. And you know, back in 2018, um, when Republican Senator Jim Merritt uh, was running for reelection, he barely won the seat, um, you know, beating out his Democratic challenger by, uh, I think, fewer than 2,000 votes. Uh, so you know, this is a district that's become more uh, competitive um, in, in recent years, as you have uh, younger families moving into the suburbs. You know, this is a, a district that's becoming more diverse, um, and that tends to attract more more Democrats than Republicans.
0: So here again, we have an incumbent who did not get the job through a general election. How did Walker become state senator?
2: That's right. Uh, uh, Senator Merritt um, uh, resigned in 2020. Senator Kyle Walker was uh, appointed by a caucus uh, to replace his term. So um, Walker is uh, finishing out um, the end of his first uh, two-year term, and he's looking for uh, another uh, four years in office.
0: Uh, it's notable to me that Walker is one of the few, and, and Greg, you can help me out here, few, if any, Republicans in the Indiana State House to vote against the near-total abortion ban that the legislature passed earlier this year, as well as the bill that removed the permit requirement to carry a firearm in public. Does that Do we have a sense at all, does that hurt him, with Republican voters in that district? Does he get the rhino tag for splitting from the general GOP consensus, or is that really not an issue?
1: I think that district is, uh, is more moderate uh, than most, uh, and I think that is you know, part of the reason um, that he probably won't face the kind of severe backlash uh, you know, from uh, the people in, in his district that you might, if you were in a more rural, conservative Republican district. And tell me about Ver. what is her background?
2: Jolson Vare uh, serves on uh, Fisher City Council as an at-large member. Um, I believe she's one of two Democrats on on the city council. Um, This is her first, you know, high-profile run for public office, her uh, first time running for for statewide office, you know, and she's basically uh, campaigned largely on a single issue, which is abortion. You know, she has said um, that, you know, while her opponent uh, voted against, you know, Indiana's abortion ban, he would not fight to repeal it. And as she has said, that's something she would do. So uh, she's tried to differentiate herself from her opponent in those ways. Um, And uh, she's also, you know, been able to raise about $120,000, which is not a lot when you look at Walker's campaign chest, he's raised one and a half million over the last two years. Um, He's been able to, you know, uh, flood the airwaves with um, both positive and negative ads going after Vare. Vare has, you know, largely concentrated her resources on um, targeting voters in her district um, through various ads, um, both digitally and in print and on social media.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was wondering how you would combat that kind of advantage um, when you're out-earned by a factor of 10.
2: Yeah, she's basically said that Kyle Walker is, um, you know, running ads on on TV that in, in some cases, you know, reach you know, 30 plus counties. And so, you know, she likes to say, well, I'm, you know, spending my resources uh, specifically on on constituents in my district. But of course, Walker is able to claim a bit better, um, a greater reach with his strategy.
0: So finally, we would be remiss in not addressing the U.S. Senate race between Republican incumbent Todd Young, aiming for his second term in Congress, and Democrat Tom McDermott, the Democratic mayor of Hammond, Indiana. There's also a third option in James—and help me with this Seniac, a behavioral therapist running as a libertarian candidate. Now, there was a debate a couple of weeks ago. Peter, how did they stake out their turf or try to frame the election?
2: Senator Young um, was uh, often touting his experience, you know, getting things done in Congress. He, you know, mentioned the Chips and Science Act, um, you know, which was legislation he championed along with— uh, senator democratic senator chuck schumer he basically you know wants to uh you know show hoosiers that um you know he'll fight for their vote and that he's able to to get things done in congress you know he's also quick to um you know blame president biden and democrats for you know frivolous spending um that has led to inflation you know he, he he pins that on the other party you had uh Tom McDermott really going on the offensive in that debate, you know, really going after uh, Todd Young at any chance he could. Whereas Todd sort of is less likely to, um, you know, attack his his opponents. He he more likes to uh, go on his own record.
0: And what did we hear from uh, from Seniak? Uh,
2: so so Seniak, uh, you could sort of tell when he was when he was on the stage that this was a a bit of a new experience for him. But you know, he certainly um, he certainly gave it his all.
0: Do we have any polling in, in this race? Surely, uh, at the national level, somebody is interested in, in whether or not yeah.
1: Young is doing well. Well, the only polling I've seen is from, uh, again, uh, Abdul-Hakim Shabazz. Um, and uh, again, it shows that this, this race is very close. Todd Young has a slight lead, but it's within the margin of error. Again, this was a poll that was done early on. Um, it's a uh, poll results that surprised uh, a lot of people. Um, but I think uh, it could be explained. I mean, I think most people think that Todd Young certainly has the advantage uh, as the incumbent and in terms of his fundraising uh, and to some degree in terms of his record on bipartisanship. But while the results were surprising, I think you can explain them by, by looking at the fact that a large number of people were undecided. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that Um, among Republicans anyway, uh, particularly among the most conservative Republicans, is that Todd Young has not been endorsed uh, by former President Trump the way many other uh, people in Congress have been. Uh, And I think that there is some reluctance within the party to fully embrace him on the conservative end of the spectrum. But I think when the election rolls around, those folks certainly are not going to vote uh, for Tom McDermott, and I think you'll find them flocking back uh, to Todd Young. Uh, and in the end, I, you know, I, 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 I've been wrong about uh, prognosticating before, uh, but I really expect uh, Todd Young to carry this race by probably at least 10 to 15 points.
0: Well, certainly in the, on the fundraising side, it doesn't seem like much of a contest. I think McDermott had raised $660,000 since the start of his campaign. Young had, I think, $13 million?
2: That's right. He knows how to
0: fundraise. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, guys, thanks for the overview. Give me a sense, Greg, of what our coverage is going to be like on Tuesday.
1: Well, we'll be following closely all the races that that we've touched on today. Those are the primary races that we'll be following. Um, But we'll have updates um, throughout the day regarding um, how things are going at the polls, what the turnout looks like. Uh, And then Peter and I and uh, Taylor Wooten, who covers um, city-county government for us, Uh, And also uh, Leslie Weidenbenner, who's the editor of IBJ, will be here through the night (laughs) (laughs) providing all the details that you want to know. So just follow us at uh, IBJ.com.
0: IBJ.com. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Mason. My thanks again to Greg Weaver and Pete Blanchard. And again, make sure you check out our election coverage on November the 8th at IBJ.com. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. Noblesville leaders expect a stretch of undeveloped agricultural land on the city's southeast side to become Hamilton County's next epicenter of innovation. Daniel Bradley has the details on Innovation Mile, a 300 to 400-acre master plan district where city planners hope to attract companies in the medical, tech, biosciences, pharmaceutical, and advanced manufacturing sectors. Also in this week's issue, John Russell delves into a trend sweeping the senior living industry, providing fewer services to residents, including doing away with daily meals and transportation, which can lower rent, but also alienate residents who have relied on such services. And Susan Orr examines how IU researchers are developing virtual reality tools to aid in the treatment of substance abuse. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ, or online at ibj.com. I will say it is easier, however, to access all of the latest local news about business and politics, and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business, community, and economy, if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ Podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.